just to let you all know, for the people who have already come in, that the meeting is going to be, uh, that the talk's going to be recorded. Uh, and we'll get started at five past, just to allow people to join us. All right, so let's get started. Uh, thank you all for joining us today for the second talk of our new event series on race and racism in the Americas. Um, my name is Malu Gato and I'm a lecturer in Latin American politics at the Institute of the Americas. And today it is my great pleasure to introduce Professor Nadia Brown, whose work makes really frequent appearances in, on my syllabi. And so I really do hope that some of my students are here today. Um, professor Brown is uh, professor of government, uh, chair of the Women's and Gender Studies Program and affiliate in the African-American Studies Program at Georgetown University. Um, her work is really innovative, both uh, theoretically as well as methodologically. And she makes really important contributions to the scholarships on identity politics, intersectionality, legislative studies and black women's political representation. She is an incredibly prolific author and has published many uh, articles and books. Uh, the most recent of which is titled Sister Style, The Politics of Appearance for Black Women Political Elites, which is co-authored with uh, Danielle Lemmy. She'll talk about this book today. Um, I could keep on talking about her work, but I also wanted to highlight her great contributions to the profession because I think that these often aren't perhaps mentioned, but are so important in making sure that, um, you know, women uh, and uh, people from marginalized backgrounds in the profession uh, are able to stay in the profession and, uh, and to essentially succeed in the profession. And uh, Professor Brown has been doing uh, excellent work in, in this to, contri to contribute to this, both as you know, lead editor uh, of, of one of my favorite journals, which is Politics, Groups, and Identities, um, as well as editor of the Monkey Cage blog of the Washington Post, which seeks to uh, make academic work accessible to the wider public. But she's also doing incredible work uh, to address sexual harassment in the profession as part of the hashtag MeToo PolySci Collective, uh, for which she has uh, been uh, has received uh, a grant from the National Political Science uh, from sorry from the National Science Foundation's Advanced Program. And so, with that, uh, you know, I I just wanted to welcome her and thank her for her time. I'm really excited to to be learning from her today. 
Um, so I just yield the floor to you. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Dr. Gatto. Um, sorry, the toddler just walked in. So I'm going to do <laughs> something I never thought. Give me one second. I just need to just ask her kindly to, I know, come second. I'll be right back. I know, I know, mama's gonna talk. Okay, give me one second, baby. I'll be right back. Okay, thank you. All right, so sorry. And um, as a, you know, I have, now you know I have toddlers. Um, so <laughs> this is what life is like working at home during the pandemic. There's just, even if it wasn't pandemic, I'd still be here and they'd be there too. Um, so thank you, Professor Godwin and Professor Whittem for inviting me to share my research with you today. Um, I'm going to be talking to you uh, about my latest book, Sister Style, The Politics of Appearance for Black Women Political Elites. And it was published with my co-author and colleague, Danielle Lemmy. So we start off with the premise that not all Black women political elites are the same. Now this might seem obvious to some, but in political science literature, um, in racial, ethnic politics and gender politics in the US, um, that is yet to be proven or seen as well, right? Because Black women tend to have high levels of group cohesiveness. They vote in similar, similar ways. They have similar policy preferences and they turn out to vote in really high rates. Um, so from the outside looking in, it looks like Black women all got together and decided how they were going to vote, who they were going to vote for, what they were going to do. And the work that I want to show in political science is that not all Black women are the same. So this picture here to your left is a Stacey Abrams. She was the first Black woman to receive the Democratic uh, National Party's um, uh, nomination for governor. There's never been a Black woman to serve as governor in the United States of America. The picture here that you see to your right is of Kamala Harris. She is the first woman, first woman of color, vice president of the United States. Um, so they are phenomenal women in their own right. But I'll let me talk to you a little bit through about um, how we can see that they're different. So Stacey Abrams um, goes on a syndicated talk show, an urban radio show in 2018 where she says um, that she people don't think she's electable because she's dark skin, heavy set, has natural hair and no husband. And the talk show host um, said, oh, that's so silly. You're the most accomplished person. And then goes on to list her accomplishments of being the minority leader in the Georgia State House as being someone who has a law degree, a master's degree, someone who has pushed progressive legislation. And Stacey Abrams kind of just said, it's like, yes, right? Like all those things are true, right? <laughs> um, but it doesn't, but doesn't take away that people don't see her as electable because of what she looks like. Then fast forward, um, then scroll backwards, I'm sorry, to an event where Kamala Harris was then the state's attorney general in California and was introducing president at the time, Barack Obama, for a private fundraiser. And after she introduced Barack Obama, he took the microphone from her and said, thank you so much, uh, Attorney General Kamala Harris. Um, she's the most attractive state's attorney general. And the crowd laughed. And then he said, come on, you know, it's true. And they laughed again. And then he just went on with his speech. Well, a couple of days passed and the president's remarks were leaked. So um, it was really 
feminists who were up in arms to say, why would you talk about this woman's credentials? Why wouldn't you say anything about she's the first um, woman of color state's attorney general? She is qualified. She's a graduate of Howard University. She's a graduate of um, a prestigious law school in the Cal in the UC system, and she has this very um, proven track record as a law enforcement, the nation's top law, the state's um, top law enforcement official. And so Barack Obama called up Kamala Harris and apologized for calling her attractive. And they just kind of laughed and they just, it was like a public spectacle. So I show these two things, I tell these two stories because of how we're thinking about these black women are mediated based on what they look like. Abrams is a descendant of enslaved people who were sharecroppers in Mississippi. Her parents later moved to uh, the Atlanta area, um, Atlanta, Georgia. Kamala Harris is the daughter of a South Indian woman and a Jamaican father who immigrated to the United States to go to college. She then moves with her mother to Canada, comes back to the United States and goes to college at historically black university. So both um, Kamala Harris and Stacey Abrams are graduates of historically black university. Kamala Harris pledges the first black woman sorority in the United States. So they have these deep connections and ties to black communities, but they look completely different and they were taken seriously or not seriously based on what they look like. And so that's what I'm going to be talking to you about today. So what I call this is this deep dive into um, a beautiful intersectional mess. And I take this title, Intersectionality is a Mess Worth Making from a colleague and mentor, Wendy Smooth, who wrote this article in 2006 that implored scholars to think about intersectionality, the deep ways that people's identities overlap and shape and are corresponding to one another and the um, effects or impacts it have on society, oppressions, privileges, marginalizations. And I think in order to do this deep dive into intersectional mess is to look at what black women look like. So I have three pictures here, three little vignettes and I'll, I'll walk you through them. This first one uh, to the left is of um, Councilwoman Edwards in the city council in Boston who, who enacted or wanted to enact the Crown Act. And the Crown Act is a legislation working its way through Congress, um, but also through states and city governments throughout the United States. That would ban um, discrimination based on hair texture or hairstyles. So this, this bill would allow people with kinky, coily, or curly hair to wear their hair in ways that grows out of their head in styles that protect the growth and well-being of the hair without having to straighten it to look more Euro-American. And um, Councilwoman Edwards got in front of the city council and said, I'm, I want this law to be passed because I want to impact the girls that were just like me. And so in the United States, little girls and boys are being disciplined or being removed from schools because of the way they're wearing their hair, whether it's locked like mine or in braids or beads or twists or an Afro, that they are being said their hair doesn't match the school uniform and they need to leave. And so Councilwoman Edwards is making, wanting to make this bill because she wants to protect little girls like her. This middle picture is of um, Kamala Harris when she was still in the um, running for president. So this is early 2020. And I love this picture for a couple of reasons. It's doing two things. 
So first she is going and asking black women for their vote in an indigenous black women's space, the beauty shop. So we know that the beauty shop is one of those cultural significant spaces where black women go to get their hair done, but it's a place that's kind of closed off and insular that people with Afro textured hair Black women in particular um, have community outside of the watchful eyes of others who don't understand the maintenance, the products, just what goes in to maintaining and caring for Afro-textured hair. And she's doing this in a way that is removing politics from being transactional, right? It's like, I'm instead of um, politicians asking people to come and show up for them at their rallies, Kamala Harris is actually going to a place where Black women are and asking them to vote for her. And you see this woman getting her hair deconditioned underneath the, the hair dryer. The other part I love about this is that it plays on uh, the memories of Madam C.J. Walker, the first Black woman millionaire who made her, her living to the turn of the century for um, hair, Black women's hair care, but not only just teaching Black women how to take care of their hair, but creating uh, generations of Black women's wealth by creating Walker agents who sold the Walker method and Walker hair, hair care products door to door, which enabled Black women to leave um, their jobs as domestics, as laundress, um, women that were oftentimes abused at, um, at these service, uh, service roles. And also gave them their own money. They didn't have to be dependent on men in their lives. Right? They didn't have to go ask their husband to take care of them or their fathers or any other male figures. They had their own money and they were doing so in legitimate ways. This last picture is of, is, is of um, Ayanna Presley, the first black woman member of Congress from the Massachusetts, from Massachusetts on the Boston, the Boston area, who um, went on the AM Joys at, um, a talk show here in the US on MSNBC. And she shared publicly that she had has alopecia and she lost her very last strand of hair right the day before President Trump was impeached the first time. Okay, because she's been impeached twice. Um, and so she said that it was such a stressful, um, right? This, this was a stressful event and that alopecia was exacerbated by, um, by the stressfulness of just preparing for the impeachment. But then also she, it was such a vitriolic time in the nation's history that, that she was receiving death threats. Her staff was receiving death threats. Like it was just a, um, just a very heightened stressful experience. This was huge for Ayanna Presley because she made her political brand or part of her political brand was on having natural hair. So she would wear her hair in Senegalese twists which are big chunky um, twists um, with added hair on on her hair and she wanted little girls and women to say that you could be a United States Congresswoman with natural hair and have this kind of this hairstyle. And so on this interview with uh, with with um, Joanne Reed, she says, hair is political. For Black women, for Black girls, hair is political. And so her decision to go onto the floor of Congress with her bald head, is just an extension of her saying, I want to go on the floor of Congress with Senegalese twists. So why hair, right? So I've gotten a lot of pushback about like, there's so many other things that are happening in this world that Black women are dealing with. Why are you studying hair? This is you know, frivolous. It's, it's, it's nothing to be taken seriously. It's really, really frivolous. And um, so it is in political science, but other disciplines that I draw from show the uniqueness of hair. And I'm able to bring this work into political science, which is my contribution. So we know from sociologists that Black women's hair has political meanings. So if I were to ask you to close your eyes and in your mind, think of um, Angela Davis, 
you might think of the freedom fighter Angel Davis with her big afro, right? The kind of sig- that signified um, black power or running away from an oppressive U.S. state, right? Or if you think about those that have dreadlocks, you might think about Rastafari and the movement away from um, Babylon or like white Eurocentric culture and really getting back to an Afro-conic, Afro uh, Afrocentric um, way of life. But we know that even when those hairstyles enter into mainstream America, they still have political meanings. Um, Here in the United States, there was just a um, Netflix documentary about Colin Kaepernick, who was the um, displaced uh, football quarterback who couldn't find a job because he wanted to kneel during the Pledge of Allegiance or the Star Spangled Banner. I don't follow football. I don't know. But the point of the story is he has an afro. And that for many white people was um, like a marker of his otherness, right? Having this afro textured hair and having it so big showed defiance back to this kind of like black power mode. And so while people every day wear afros or locks like I have now, um, they still carry political meanings, even if the person wearing them is just a fashion choice. But um, but for many sociologists have found that they're read with having these kind of political connotations. And then turning ourselves um, more attention to black women's bodies, we know from historians that hair has social implications. So um, women, black women who have the ability to straighten their hair, to keep it straight, to have longer hair, not as kinky or coily, um, are able to marry up. So men with higher status get higher educational attainment. They're able to have better jobs. And we know that these markers of hair continue to mediate black women's bodies. So um, there are legal cases where um, black women have, have sued for their freedom during enslavement and how the judge was able to determine if a person should have freedom or not was by the kink or curl of their hair. And so there's a famous uh, court case where um, a woman claims that she is Native American and um, as more Native American than she is African American. And the judge agrees because her hair is not the giving the giveaway marker. And these things continue to mediate Black women's bodies, right? How they're read, to the degree to which they are associated with Africanness based on the kink or texture of their hair. But Black women are invincible, right? We define our hair, we redefine it. And so um, using a phrase from Missy Elliott, it's like we flip it and reverse it, right? So things that were meant to harm people or to to denigrate Black women, they've made it into their own. So an example is um, in during colonial periods, particularly in the Southeast, Black women were punished um, by having their head shaved during enslavement, or they were branded with scarred um, to their scalp of their hair, so their hair would grow in patchy or uneven. Um, Black women then were would wear scarves tied around their heads, protect their hair from the heat or from sweat and damage and lice and all their kinds of things, um, bugs. Um, and they also had this patchy and uneven hair. But those were completely different looks from Black women who would wear elaborate scars um, around their heads with beautiful colors and tied in very beautiful, ornate ways. And that drew the attention of, of white men in particular, right, who saw these women as being sexually desirable because of how they presented themselves in the streets. So you take these two things, right, having your hair covered at the scarf because you're working or having your hair covered in this elaborate scarf, right, in these different kinds of ways, right? They're both two pieces of cloth on Black women's hair, but they do different meanings, right? And Black women are able to use them for their advantages. 
I'm drawing more closely to my work. Uh, Danielle Lemmy and I have shown that black that voters evaluate black women based on their hair texture. So if a candidate has kinkier, tighter curled hair, um, voters think that they're more Afrocentric and are going to be more black nationalistic. My own work shows that black women's legislative experiences are connected to what their hair looks like. So how they're treated in the state house is sometimes based on their hair texture. And I'll leave you with this, right? So hair is both the site of agency and predeterminedness. So what does this mean? So basically, we can't do anything about our genetics, right? So our parents gave us the kind of hair that we will have, how it grows or doesn't grow, the texture, the color, all of these things. But it's predetermined, right? We can that, So that part is predetermined. But we have agency. So we got up this morning, decided we wanted to present ourselves on Zoom or not, based on what we find culturally um, attractive and what our hair can or cannot do. So hair is a site of cultural practice, meaning we worked on it with human hands. So none of us has really like just got up and come somewhere, <clears throat> right? Like, so we've done something, we've cut it, we've colored it, we've combed it, we've washed it, we've put some product in it. And it's all culturally relevant to right now because our hair, we wouldn't be styling our hair this where we're doing it now if we were living in 1920 or fast forward if we were living in 2045, right? We would have different kind of hair. So I wanna show us in this, in this study that aesthetics matter but they can be managed and controlled. I wanna to talk to you a little bit about how black women political elites are managing and controlling their hair and why. So I housed this in a conversation around respectability politics. And I wanna be crystal clear that respectability politics is a mechanism for dealing with white supremacy and racism, right? So the term comes to us from um, historian Evelyn Hickenbotham who did um, research on black club women at the turn of the century. I guess I need to change that, right? Because it's been two other centuries since then, um, but right after Reconstruction um, during the Jim Crow era to say that Black women wanted to really dispel this notion that they were backwards or behind because of their race and sex. So they really um, embrace these Victorian middle-class nodes of working and being to say, if I'm adhering to all the most respectable things in the world, how can you say that I am not a human being or I am less than, right? So they are playing to the racists' um, sentiments and, and showing that they are not these things, right? So they're not necessarily disavowing white supremacy, they're playing into this, right? By saying, I can do all the things that any white Victorian middle-class person can do. And because I can do those things, you need to treat me like a human being. And so again, I, I want us to, to think about respectability as the lens to see this, but always keeping in our mind that these women are responding to white supremacy, right? There wouldn't be this need to disavow um, our bodily politics, if it weren't that our bodies were already marked with white, um, white heteropatriarchy in particular. And then lastly, as my like lead up to what I'm doing here, um, this quote by Audre Lorde uh, really st sticks out to me and kind of was the impetus for doing this project. Lorde says, if I didn't define myself for myself, I would be crunched into other people's fantasies for me and eaten alive. And I argue that's what political science does to black women. Political science measures, assesses, um, really tries to compare black women to other groups, often using this deviant model of saying, they're, they don't do this like white men, they don't do this like black men, they don't do this like white women, um, and or other groups of people, right? 
but it's not really looking at Black women for themselves. I mean, Black women the chance to talk and say, this is who I am as a political actor and as a political figure. And as so, political science has eaten Black women alive. And what I want to do in my work is give Black women voice and agency so that they can define themselves, to speak for themselves. So these are just, I'm going to talk to you today from um, some things from chapter three. This is the book outline. Um, and I'm going to talk to you about how political elites have been talking to me about how they decide how they want to look and why their look matters. I'm an interpretivist, which means I make sense out of what people say, cultural sense out of what people say. Um, I'm a black feminist researcher. So I'm placing the words, the meeting space, the silences, the gaps, um, the context in which people are talking in a holistic um, context. So my goal here is really theory building and then the latter parts of the book um, are used to empirically measure what black women um, have said in the first half of the book. So I've done a bunch of interviews um, that have happened really since 2011 that I've had ongoing with, um, with Black women political elites as candidates, office holders, um, and the like. So I'm going to give you, I should have given this disclaimer earlier. I'm going to read, with, read to you the quotes because they're long and they're big, um, but also things are uh, wonky still with Twitter. I mean, sorry, with Twitter, with Zoom, it's been two years and I'm still like toggling back and forth between screens. So please bear with me. I apologize in advance. So this first quote comes to us from Darlene Hobbs. And she says, oh, she's a Republican uh, running in a majority minority district outside of part of it's in Chicago. Some of it's in the suburbs outside of Chicago, but it is a majority black district that was, um, it's a super black nationalist district. I mean, even Barack Obama didn't win it his when he first ran for Congress. Um, and it's currently uh, former Black Panther um, holds the seat. So basically she had no way of winning. All right, so she says, Republicans don't know what's going on with my hair. African-American voters, I know they look at what a person looks like. And I say that because I've been there, I know. As far as Republicans, I know that they will look, but I don't think that it's more of an emphasis as much as African-American Democrats they, meaning Republicans, may wonder how much I'm spending and whose money I'm spending. But I don't think that the focus on my hair would be more critical as it is on the Democratic side. I'm sure you know what I mean, representing to me as a Black woman. We were raised that we should look our best and be our best. And if we're going to be representing people, that is what is to be expected, to look our best and to be our best. But it's expensive and time-consuming. The others, meaning whites, might not have to. But hey, you can't please everybody. So what's going on here is a couple of things. So the first is she's kind of, she's complaining Democrats and Black people, Republicans and white people. And as a Black Republican, right, she is saying that she wants to kind of separate herself, right, from um, how Republicans are thinking about Black folks slash Democrats. And this is coming at a time when Democrats um, in um, that were running for public office, had some pretty high profile, very expensive haircuts. And Republicans really balked at this saying like Democrats can't manage money. But also in that narrative is that black people can't manage money, right? So Republicans have this austerity measures that they don't want to be as generous to undeserving populations and black people are viewed within, um, within that frame. 
Other thing is happening on here. She's telling me that um, we have to look our best to be our best, right? And referring this to me as a Black woman. This is, this is an adage that Black families tell their children. Again, back to respectability politics, right? If you want to be taken seriously, you must look the part. So while it's enough for other kids to run around in like jeans or sweatpants, for Black kids to look the part that they are respectable means that you have to always be looking appropriate, right? And that's hair neat, shoes, clothes, all these things neat. And it means something, particularly when you're trying to represent people, right? So people will judge you based on what you look like. And so if you want to be the best, you have to look the best, look the part. And this, again, is a holdover vestige from enslavement. And then the last thing that's happening here is that her hair isn't done, <laughs> right? So she's like, purposely, my hair is not done, really because I can't afford it, right? It's expensive and it's time consuming. The way that she was wearing her hair was straightening. And in her um, in her area, it would have cost about $85 to a hundred and some dollars, like 120 to get her hair straightened and styled every six weeks. She doesn't have the money. But as a Republican, she felt that as a badge of honor, right? Because one, she says Republicans don't want to spend money. They would they would wonder what, you know, what I'm spending money on. If I'm getting these campaign dollars, am I going to get my hair done? But also white people don't know what's going on with black people hair, right? What she's telling me, right? Like they just don't know it's not done. Black people know it's not done, but I'm not running for white people. I'm not running for black people, but she was and she lost. All right, this next quote is from Lindsay Black Blackwell. And she was running for a position um, that would have been states, she would have been county attorney general, prosecuting general, I'm sorry. Um, and St. Louis, Missouri, St. Louis County, Missouri. And she lost the election just nine days before Mike Brown was murdered. So Mike Brown, you may know, um, mm -hmm. was the teen who was killed in um, Ferguson, Missouri by a white police officer that really ignited the Black Lives Matter movement. The prosecuting attorney was a white man who had held his seat for 27 years. So Lindsey Blackwell had a very uphill battle of trying to win the seat. But, you know, it, it isn't lost on me to think about what would the grand jury have looked like if a Black woman was the prosecuting attorney. Okay. So I asked her to tell me a little bit about, you know, how she decided to wear her hair for this election. And she says, well, I can't win this race solely on the African-American vote. And I felt that my twist would intimidate the white population because they think that they see that and think you're a militant person. And I'm not. So I relaxed it and I'm still not happy about it. So a relaxer is a chemical that you put on um, uh, Afro-textured hair to make it straight. And in order to get that chemical out of your hair, you have to grow your hair out. So that takes several months or years, or you have to cut it all off. So she decided that she wanted, instead of wearing her natural hair and twists, that she would put the chemicals in it to make it straight, which was kind of like a permanent solution to someone who you know, lost this race nine days later. So when I asked her about this, um, I, you know, I'm talking to her about, so why did you relax it? You know, why didn't you just try to put heat on it so that it would straighten, but it wasn't permanent? And she says, well, I was told I needed to keep it up during the campaign. So a bob it's been in. I admit it. I have an appointment for a cut in some color, but I'm going to go back natural after the election. My husband prefers my hair straight and long. I feel it to be boring. I think it makes me look older. Even as professional as I am, there's still something about me that I still like a little fun. When I think of professional, I think of at least clean and put together. Could I pull it off my natural hair? You know, I like to think that I could have, but I'm also in Missouri. So a couple of things that's going on. First, right, she perms her hair, she relaxes her hair, 
and um, doesn't win, but she's doing all these things for other people, right? Her husband likes her hair a certain way. She thinks voters want her hair a certain way and everyone but her, right? She's trying to please. Um, my research shows that voters kind of see through this, that if you are um, kind of putting on a front of yourself, right? If you're, if you're not being your true self, voters don't feel that connection and don't wanna vote for you. So that could have happened here. The other thing that she's talking about is having professional hair means having clean hair, this idea that Afro-textured hair isn't clean. So the idea behind this is that Afro-textured hair is so kinky um, and curly and curly that in order for our hair to grow, the um, we need to leave it alone, right? But also not wash it as much because the, the, the natural oils of that our hair makes doesn't travel down to the root, from the root to the shaft of the hair. Whereas straight hair, um, it gets oily quickly because it's straight and the oil travels from the scalp all the way down. But it doesn't happen the same way with natural hair. And so when outsiders learn that people with Afro-textured hair don't wash their hair as often as they do, they think that it's dirty. And it actually isn't. If people with Afro-textured hair were to wash their hair as frequently as people with straight hair, it, wouldn't, it would break off. So here's a quote from Christy Brownell, who was running for um, school board, who was a, sorry, who was a former school board member um, in a very small town in Indiana um, and a very white town in Indiana, but she grew up there. And so I asked her, how, did this, how would she describe herself if someone were looking for her to meet her for the first time and how she might think about how she would describe herself when she's running for office. And she says, well, I'm trying to be comfortable, help people be comfortable with me. And um, calling it an Afro would make some people uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, I think so. So you don't know what kind of impact your words are going to have. So even though she had an Afro, she didn't want to call her hair an Afro. She called it a short natural. So her hair was just more closely cropped to her head, but it was still in its natural state. But she thought that if she called it an Afro, people would think that she was militant and wouldn't feel comfortable with her. So I talked to her a little bit about this, right? Because she's been natural for a long time. So just ask her to talk to me about her, her process of not putting chemicals in her hair or straightening it. And, oh, sorry. Again, all of the Zoom woes. Okay, so she says, when I went natural, I got flack from the old ladies and church sisters. They'd ask, why, are your, why is your hair nappy like that? Now, this was back in 1971. The sisters in the church were the ones that gave me the most grief. These ladies, they were into creamy crack. They didn't want no naps on their head and thought that we shouldn't either. And when I talk about the church sisters, I'm talking about the old ones, the ones that helped raise me. Yeah, so they were the ones stuck in through their teeth and whatnot, but my peers, yeah, we're different. Oh yeah, we we're wearing all of our hair, letting it grow out. But I was quick to say to the church sisters, why are you wearing your hair like that? Because I don't think we need to adhere to European standards of beauty. So she's calling out these church sisters, right? She's saying that why, you know, why are you thinking you have to wear straight hair when that's really just this Eurocentric, you know, framing of like how black women should look, although our hair does not grow out of our head that way. But in the same breath, right, she's saying that she wants people to be comfortable with her. And so she doesn't call her hair an Afro. This uh, next quote is from Ada Appleton, and she was a woman who was um, running for the Maryland House of Delegates. Um, and she is in, works in a very high profile law firm in DC, is one of the few black women lawyers there. And she explained that the black women lawyers in this very prestigious uh, DC law firm 
were kind of like a family, right? Because there were so few of them, they would really get together and were pretty close knit. And so I asked her about when she was deciding to run for office, how did she decide how she wanted to look? And she tells me the story that, and I'll start here. She said, it wasn't just around kitchen tables. Instead, it was me walking down the hall at my job, like three women yoking me up, like, come here. I need to talk to you. And I was like, yes. And they were like, literally, you can't run for office with your hair like that all over your head. And I was like, what? What do you mean? But she said that in a very joking manner, right? She knew exactly what these women meant, but she used them um, pulling her into that, the, the coffee room in, in their office to get them to help her on her campaign. So she said, well, if you care so much about this part of the campaign, could you help by making copies of my leaflets? Would you door knock? Would you help to sign up for, uh, for fundraisers? And so she felt that, you know, playing coy to say, what did you mean? Was actually this way to start conversation with these other high profile women who had all of like the political skills to help her run a campaign. But her, so I asked her about her campaign materials. And when she came back with her flyer, she had straight hair on the flyer. And so I asked her about that. And she says, this is a blow dryer. You need it. It's serious business. The decision to remain natural on the campaign trail. But I saw how I did after a blowout. There was little resistance. But then it's one of those things that you have to make a decision. Is this is a battle I really want to fight, right? And for me, natural hair, it's not necessary. It's not a political statement, you know, to a certain extent, like this is just my hair. So she decides to straighten it um, with her blow dry, which is called a blowout, which puts heat on the natural hair to make it straight. It will go back to its natural state once it gets wet. But unlike Lindsay Blackwell, who used uh, chemicals to straighten her hair, she can go back and forth. And so for Ada Appleton, she's like, this isn't a big deal. I'm not going to lay my cross on this, right? This is what I'm going to wear. Um, and that's it. And she's won re-election several times over. This last quote is from, um, actually from a focus group that we did, but I think the quote is so illustrative that I wanted to bring it into the talk here, even though it's not in this particular chapter. So um, Danielle and I did focus groups in Texas with black women in the Dallas area. And there was a young woman, a millennial who was running for um, Texas, Dallas County Tex uh, City Council. And I asked her about how she wanted to wear her hair. Um, or we were just talking about this as a part of the focus groups. And she got really emotional, right? Just really emotional about how she wanted to wear her hair. Now, during the focus group, she had on a wig. So her hair was straight. And she says, I like to wear my fro, twist out to other funky hairstyles. I'm a millennial. I like to beat my face, you know, be cute. But in order for me to be seen as a viable candidate, I have to appear to be more subdued. I put on a wig, I wear feminine dresses and tone down my makeup. Although I love a good hot pink lip, this is frustrating because the white woman that I'm running against has brightly colored hair. She goes from blue to pink to purple and she's seen as progressive. She's viable, but my record is better than hers. I put more work into our community, but I'm not seen as viable unless I look the part. And that goes back to the quote from Darlene Hobbs, right? Like, what does a viable candidate look like? You have to look your best to be our best, right? And this progressive, right, this white woman who was running um, in this liberal district was seen as um, more electable and the progressiveness showed by the colors of her hair, right? Whereas this millennial wanted to wear her fro, her twist outs and other kind of funky hairstyles, which would have been just as progressive looking, right? But that it wasn't seen as respectable. And she actually cried during this focus group. 
because she wanted to be herself, right? And she recognized that her record was better than her opponent. She had done so much more work in the community. She wanted to be elected because she had a heart and a passion for changing this community, but knew that people wouldn't see her as electable unless she had straight hair. So to end, um, the takeaways are that Black women are aware of and continue to engage respectability politics. I don't think that respectability politics is going anywhere anytime soon, even with the natural hair movement, right? It's kind of naturalistic movement. Because again, right, respectability is organic within Black politics and Black communities, right? This, this was a technique or a tactic to disavow white supremacy, uh, racism, and sexism, but then yet has become internalized to say like, who are the good black folks? Who are the middle-class black folks? Who are the folks that look like they're doing something for their community towards racial uplift? And then lastly, right, straight hair, straight hair remains the gold standard for black women in politics, even today, when many of our elected officials don't have state, straight hair, but that look is seen as what, um, what Black women politicians should look like. So I'll end here. Um, and this is my email address if you're interested in connecting with me. I also have a 30% off um, uh, discount code if you're interested in purchasing the book. I can share that with you. And please engage with me. I'm on Twitter um, way too much. And my handle is Brown PhD Girl. Thank you again. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Brown. This was a fascinating uh, talk, and I'm sure that it will, you know, lots of people are going to be interested in actually getting your your discount code. <laughs> and uh, yes, do follow Professor Brown on Twitter because it's great content uh, <laughs> um, and adorable photos. It's uh, like random musings of like toddlers and other stuff, but yes. <laughs> Um, all right, so it looks like we um, have questions coming up. Uh, Kate Quinn, I saw your hand up, but then I think it's down. I'm like a bit confused as to where the hands are going. But Kate, if you... Hi, sorry, I was actually trying to do the applause clap hand, but um, <laughs> so I really enjoyed your talk. Thank you very much for that. Um, so... I could have a question. I mean, I guess it's not fair in a way to ask you about something you haven't spoken about, but you have, you, have you also looked, um, in addition to hair, looked at, you know, um, clothes and, you know, pantsuits versus dashikis, etc.? Yeah, so I have, I, I don't have anything as systematic about clothes, but one of, um, one of the women I spoke to was a candidate um, for mayor at the time of a, one of America's largest, 100 largest cities, and would share that how much work and energy it went into like um, presenting, like physically presenting yourself as a viable candidate. And that for men, right, it's like, it's like a uniform, right? It's like a dark suit. You could change out the color of the tie, but it's still like a muted tie. And that's it, right? And whereas she has to decide you know, what jacket do I wear? What shoes go with this? How do I look accessible to this community, right? Because there is this expectation that as a woman going in to talk to children, she should be like down talking to the kids and like playing, right? Whereas men, not the same kind of thing, right? It's like your outfits have to do so much more. And so she would share, she shared that in her car she had almost, you know, like half of her wardrobe was in the back of her car because she would go from different events, like to speak at, um, 
you know, like to speak at a Head Start event, to an upscale prep school event, to speak to business owners, to speak to contractors, right? Like she would just have to change and her makeup and her jewelry and the like, again, whereas men would just wear the same thing all day. And she, she, and another woman actually said the same, another candidate um, in the area said, she wondered, like mused out loud, how much time would she get back if she didn't have to think about what to wear, or how to do her hair, or um, like if you just had a standard uniform, you could put that energy and effort into actually constituent services or like doing your job, right? As opposed to uh, like the complicated ways that women have to think about presenting themselves. But yeah, th- those are the, the two examples that I have. Thank you very much. It was a very enjoyable talk. Thank you. Um, thank you. And sorry for putting you on the spot inadvertently, Kate. Uh, that was a great question. Um, so I see, oh, and please do use the raise hand function if you want to ask a question, or you're also welcome to ask a question uh, through the chat. Um, Nick, I see your hand. Thank you so much, Nadia. That was a that was a really great talk. Such a fascinating project. And um this isn't my question, but I really admired the way that you kind of delved into the interdisciplinarity there um, with the political science front and center, but all that really interesting sociology and, and history and American studies in, in the background of form, informing your approach. It made it so, so rich. Um, I guess I, I have two questions. Um, the first is, I you mentioned this briefly as something that you've worked on, but that wasn't at the forefront of your talk about the legislative experiences of the black women you studied, because I think my sense was a lot of of the way you've been talking about things today is about electability. Um, But I am definitely interested in hearing a a bit about that. And then the other thing I was interested about was the way that you made me think differently about respectability politics. And that probably says as much about my ignorance as it does about anything else. But I think you were speaking about it in in really interesting ways. And it, it, it made me think about when I, teach issues that are sort of adjacent to to what you've been talking about as a historian I often end up teaching students about civil rights black power um, and one of the things that 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 comes into that dynamic is is the question of respectability politics one of the senses I I often get is that my students when I teach them are very very down on the idea of respectability politics very much more um, admiring of of the idea of a of a kind of radical authenticity rooted in a in a kind of version of 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 I guess African cultural identity um, and I just wondered if you had any thoughts or tips on that basically because I, I feel like I, I have more resources just having listened to your talk but I I wonder if you if you have anything more to say about that yeah um, so I'll take the first part first. Uh, then I'll move to the second. Um, so yeah, so the the other work that I that actually got me started on this to be to be this book project was when I was started this project, which was my dissertation many many years ago. Um, legislators told me um, that she was the first woman to wear her hair natural, and that other people have natural hair, but she has an afro, and she's been elected for two years, and college is going to have to get over it. And then the next woman that I talked to said that people didn't like her in the in the um, in her legislative cohort. So um, my work was on Maryland, and Maryland is a multi-member district. So each district has three legislators, three members of the House of Delegates, one senator, but they all work together to like serve the same uh, community. 
And the people that were in there, the three of them didn't like this one person. And she said it was because she had long straight hair and she was lighter skin. And so these are like the first interviews that I did back to back and people started talking about how they looked um, just as like, just as conversation, right? It wasn't a question that I asked. It was just, they just brought this up. And then I started to incorporate questions about this and many more people had similar things to say. And so I published an article off of this, this data that was this unexpected thing. But what they were really sharing was that colorism, body type, um, hair texture plays a role in how people perceive them in the legislature. And those perceptions have meanings because they're unable to get legislation passed. Some people don't want to work with them. Other people really want to work with them. Um, some people, I mean, so it's, I mean, in some ways, right, it's kind of, um, it's kind of like intuitive where, you know, like if you're back in high school, you think about all the pretty kids, right? The, the, the beautiful girls have all the friends and um, like they're asked to do all the things. Um, the same thing happens in legislatures, right? <laughs> but like, we just don't make that one-to-one -one correlation because like we're still human beings right? we still carry a lot of the same socializations that we have. Um, but it just looks different for grownups in the legislative context. And so when I, when I started this work, I tried to get it published and people actually said, this isn't political science, right? Like, yeah, you're studying legislators, but it's not political science. So rejection, like we're not gonna publish this. So I really had to double this down to saying, but this impacts our legislative experiences, right? If people have ill perceptions of you, they're not gonna wanna work with you, right? No matter how great of ideas you have, no matter the policies that you're trying to push, um, like, it's just not going to go anywhere. And for Black women, right, there's this kind of this double burden of trying to present this feminine, um, you know, depiction of yourself that's also authentically racialized and then what your body can or cannot do. So there's some things that you just can't change. And that's how I ended up like flipping the piece to be able to talk more about legislative experiences. Um, and then really, really, like you said in the beginning, Nick, like really um, having to root this in interdisciplinary literature because political scientists just don't talk about this. And it was like, a, like, you're making this stuff up, right? Like, you don't, this isn't real. And I was like, no, people have been doing this for decades. <laughs> it's just not in the discipline here. Um, so connecting it to legislative experiences, I think was the first part. And then this book now looks at electability. So it really is um, the opposite. Yeah, and so then the to the um, latter part of your question about disavowing respectability politics. Yeah, so this is all the mood right now, right? And I see this in, our, in my own students, um, and even like some of my, my generation, right? So, um, so I was in St. Louis when Mike Brown was murdered um, and was marching and protesting as part of like Black Lives Matter activism. And I distinctly remember um, members of the civil rights generation saying, we can't take these kids seriously. Look what they have on, right? Like Martin Luther King marched in a suit and Coretta Scott King had on, you know, a dress that went below her knees. And you guys are out here in jeans where your pants might be sagging or you're wearing sweatshirts and Uggs, right? Like we just can't take you seriously. And what people pushed back and said, it doesn't matter what I have on. I'm still a human being, right? And no human deserves to have been shot dead and lay in the sun for almost nine hours, right? 
Like that just shouldn't have happened. And that refrain didn't have a rebuttal, right? Because it's like, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, yeah, that shouldn't have happened. But still, right? Like you don't look the part, right? It, it wasn't like it was just this failure to, to connect and engage. Um, but but we also see this like in, you know, burgeoning scholarship where um, particularly third wave uh, Black feminists have been really pushing the like the boundaries respectability right so what does it mean to be sex positivist what does it mean to like really flip how the body is seen as a site of shame or guilt um or mapping all of society's ills onto what a person looks like that can never achieve right because if i'm already you know a race gendered um you know sexual minority like whatever it is I can't help it. So why don't I just embrace it now? Like you, you were going to be xenophobic anyway. <laughs> so like, let me just, you know, roll with it. I can't, I can't change it. And so I, I try to incorporate more of this into um, the larger book project, but the part that keeps coming back is respectability, right? So it's like, it's like two steps forward, but then like respectability is right back there. So even the millennial I left you the quote with, left the last quote, um, it's like, she's, you know, she she wants to do all the things. Like she understands that how she looks should not impede her from uh, serving in office, but it will. Thank you, um, Kesua. Hello. Yeah. Hello. <laughs> Hi, thank you. I really enjoyed your talk. Um, I've, I've done, um, I'm, I'm familiar with some of the readings you mentioned. I think it's Nollyway Brooks's book. Yes. Uh, is it Beauty Matters? Yes. Um, yeah, so I, it, it was really great to hear it. And like you say, I'd, I'd never heard it from a political science perspective. I've heard it kind of in the realm of cultural studies and yes. sociology more so. Um, so I really enjoyed the talk. Thank you very much. You. I just kind of wanted to hear, and I, I'm going to do what Kate Quinn said it was wrong to do, but I, I'm, I'm going to do it anyway. I'm, I'm, <laughs> Is um, I wondered if you kind of thought about black women outside of the US, and this is just a curiosity mm. rather than a usual. Yeah. But like, so you mentioned particularly um, expulsions from school and firings, etc. And we've had a few of these kind of high-profile cases where young people have been excluded from school because of their hair in the UK, but also in the Caribbean, you have sort of a slightly yeah. inverse. But you have a lot of political figures who are female who do have natural hair, um, and kind of a really prominent example at the moment would be. Um, Mia Motley, the Prime Minister of Barbados. Um, and I just kind of wondered, and it, it, it's a, if you have thought about it, do you have any thoughts? But it's not, a, but I yeah. enjoyed the talk. Thank you so much. So, yeah, thank you for that question. Um, yes, I have thought about it, um, but I don't bring it. Okay, so yes, I've thought about it. I'll tell you how I thought about it, but then I'll explain first. Like, I don't bring it into the book because um, I want to focus on, like, I want to be able to compare apples to apples. So thinking about, right, like Black women descendants of slaves in the U.S., how do they experience body politics, right, with like the unifying kind of culture. Um, and so because of that, I also don't look at like Afro-Latinas here in the United States, right, and other kind of things. Right? I'm, I'm really trying to just like have a standard unit of analysis as a political scientist, right, but not as like a person. Um, right, because as you might tell, like I'd rather do like American studies or cultural studies. I see myself as a Black women studies person. I just happen to be in political science, um, so that's why I don't look at it in the book. But yeah, I have thought a lot about this, right? Because hairstyles don't translate um, outside of cultures in the same kind of way, right? And so um, there are cases in the Caribbean where Black girls have been sent home from school for having. Um, 
you know, Afro puffs, or if their hair was seen as too unruly um, in braids. They're, but they're also the same same countries, right, where Black girls have been celebrated for having Afro, Afro textured hair. Um, and some of this has to do with unique placement and with colonialization, um, right, kind of the histories with having Afro-descended people um, and then who's in leadership, right, kind of like um, and bodies that are seen or as things of desire or parts of bodies that are seen as things of desire. Um, and the other part is, right, things don't also transfer because at first when I started thinking about this work, I would use the terms like um, a more Afro, Afrocentric hair. And I had colleagues on the continent of Africa who said, that's not Afrocentric, <laughs> right? Like that, that's like really African-American, right? Like you, don't, you won't see, you know, women in Accra with that hairstyle, right? And so if, you know, like you have to be really, really precise. So I, I have, so because of those kind of comments when I first started this work or thinking about this, um, I have tried to be more precise in the book um, and the language in which I share here. I, I wish that um, I had the ability to think through this in more international ways, right? Because, you know, people of Afro, with Afro-textured hair are all over the globe, right? And are still facing backlash or challenges to wearing their hair the way that it grows out of their heads, just in different kinds of ways, or they're facing, you know, celebrations and acclaim because of the way their hair naturally goes out of their head, just in different kinds of ways. Um, and so I think a comparative study would be really, really useful. I just did not have the bandwidth to do that at this point. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it and I'll be looking forward to the book. That you've sent off <laughs> thank you. Thank you for engaging. Um, thank you. I mean, I don't see any other hands up. So I'm just gonna take, you know, advantage of being chair here and actually asking a question. Um the first, well, two questions. The first question I wanted to ask you, um, you know, you mentioned multiple times that uh, you know, these women are making calculations also about how um, how their hairstyle is going to uh, shape evaluations of not only their ideology, but also of their electoral viability. Um, but also, you know, how sometimes in spite of the choices they've made about their hairstyle, they still lost. And of course, you know, voters are making evaluations based on various different factors. Right. But I was just wondering whether you could uh, talk a little bit about the congruence between, uh, you know, candidates' calculations about how they're going to be perceived versus the perceptions of voters and how hair is a cue, um, you know, to evaluating other things. And then secondly, uh, you know, if you could briefly touch on how things uh, perhaps change or do not change when the uh, evaluators are a different set of actors. And so, for example, here mm. we're talking about uh, candidates thinking about voters. And then the second moment uh, is for elected officials thinking about other, you know, legislators, so their colleagues. And does that change the ways in which um, women then, uh, Black women have to think about their hair and what is it that their hair is going to signify to a different set of actors? Sure. Um, so the latter half of the book does some of the, so the sorry, to answer the first question. Um, the second half of the book, it uses experimental data 
to map this to map this on, right? So what do voters actually think about women with different kind of hairstyles? And we um, pair hairstyles and skin tone together. Um, and what we find is that voters really, certain voters prefer darker skinned women with natural hair, um, but they don't vote for them. They want to vote for a lighter skinned woman with straighter hair. And the experimental data shows that black women are the most supportive of black women candidates, regardless of what they look like, but that black men candidates will support black women, but like a lighter skin, straighter hair, um, black, black women candidate. Um, we also, uh, this is a chapter that Danielle wrote. We gathered the um, headshots of all the women that ran for office in 2020 and looked at who won and who lost and broke it down by region. So we were able to say like in the South, if you were lighter skin and had straight hair, you were more likely to win. In the Northeast, if you had natural hair, regardless of its skin color, you were more likely to win. So um, I would say, check that out because it's a natural experiment, like it actually happened. But we know like in a real time experiment, there's so much that voters are like, it's not you know the same as like my lab experiment um, because, it might not matter what a person looks like, that they're just the best candidate in that particular race, right? But it does go to show you the universe of who's running. And so overall, the women that tend to run for office tend to skew more lighter skin. Um, so we know that in terms of like, that again, the natural experiment. And then, so how do candidates think about voters? So the candidates are aware that they need to look presentable. And they've actually shared stories with me about having to look presentable. One woman was um, had a campaign flyer of her with straight hair, like a glamour shot, like with the makeup and the lights and you know, like all the, all the things. And she was doing uh, campaigning door to door and she gave a flyer to an older black man. And he looked at the flyer and looked at her, looked at the flyer, looked at her and then asked who she was. And she said she was a girl on the flyer and was running for office and was asking for his vote. And he did that a couple more times, looked at the flyer, looked at her. And then he said, well, she's cute, right? The girl on the flyer, if you can look like this, I'll vote for you, right? And she was, you know, she said she had her kids in a wagon, right? She had like her young kids pulling them with her in a wagon. She had on sweatpants, her hair was, you know, in natural twists. She just wasn't glam, like who was in glam mode all the time, right? But he was like, if this is the picture, yes, you have my vote, right? And so, but candidates know this, right? So that was just one extreme example. But in this, but in all of my field work, candidates have said stories about you know, I'm elected now, I can look how I want to look. But when I go to run again, I need to straighten my hair or tone down what I look like with terms of makeup or anything else. Then also in terms of elected officials with their colleagues, one, um, one woman that I spoke with would in the Maryland State House would change her hairstyles lots of different times. Afro textured hair is very resilient. If you take care of it, you can straighten it, you can cut it, you can dye it, you can do all sorts of things to it. Um, and it will be in good health as long as you are doing daily maintenance. So she would just change her hair all the time. 
And she noticed that people would stop her in the state house. Her colleagues would say, oh, I like your hair. And she would use that opportunity to say, oh, thank you so much. Let me tell you about my bill. Let me tell you about something I'm working on or my constituents that are having to go to this hospital that is funded by the state has some problems, right? And so she would use that as a way to bring people in who would come to compliment her on her hair, but she would pull them in to talk about policy. And I asked her like, why do you think that's working? And she laughed and said, white women don't change their hair. They have the same hairstyle for decades. Black women, we change our hair. It can be braided, it can be up, it can be down, it can be in a wig, you know, different colors. And I'm using that to my advantage. And so that's just, you know, one example, but the ways that how a woman looks, right, for Black women, it, it has different relationships with, with their colleagues. That's really fascinating, thank you. Um, we have two more questions, and so we'll just close with that. And um, so, Shodona, please. Hi, Professor Hi. Brown. Thank you so much for. Um, I think it was an enlightening talk for many people here um, that are that are listening to this wonderful lecture, because you shared so much terminology that, you know, as as Black women, we are familiar with. Um, and and just kind of you know explaining the hairdresser going to the hairdressers and and that being a safe space was um, brought back a lot of memories for me so um, thank you thank you very much I guess the question I have is regarding respectability politics and really you know is this something that you think we're just gonna have to um, you know, not only women in politics, but women in academia, black women in academia, um, black women everywhere, because as you as we know, hair is political, the person is political and hair is part of the person. So, um, you know, is this something that we're just going to have to deal with all the time? How do you see, you know, in 2045, the, the situation is going to be the same as 2021, but how do you perhaps, given the the interviews, the focus groups that you've done, see Black women navigating political spaces on account of their hair as well as other spaces? Yeah, thank you. Um, thank you for that question. Um, and I will say having, you know, having to write this book and talk to non-Black audiences has helped me to like push more of the terminology because as a black woman with Afro textured hair, raising three little black girls with Afro textured hair, right? Like it's just something that like I just use and say, but having to write this helps me to push deeper so I can bring everyone along. I hope it, I hope that I have done so. But I mean, I think, I think that there is pushback um, in respectability politics around black women's hair. I hope that we're not in the same place in 2045 as we are here in 2021. Um, but I'm not optimistic, right? If that, if that makes sense. I did focus groups with black women voters and there were women in the group who were in their seventies, uh, late sixties, seventies, who came of age during the black power movement in the United States and, um, told stories in the focus group about remembering going to their college homecoming and the homecoming queen had an Afro and that was like the scandal of the day. And everyone, you know, and all the kids and college students were like, oh yeah, that's really right on. And the, the you know, the, the alumni, the teachers, the school administrators, right? The other professors were, were kind of scandalized by, by this natural hair. 
And, but in that same breath, right, the women in their 60s, 70s, um, then turned around and shared, right, their views of natural hair in certain positions now, which was kind of mind-boggling, right? So in the same, in the same focus group, there was a younger woman who was 22 or 23, and she shared that her uh, close family friend was running for office in a very affluent um, suburb of Indianapolis, Indiana. And this um, close family friend had natural hair, would wear big glasses, loud earrings, colorful suits, right? She was just, you know, like black girl magic personified. But when she ran for office, um, she was told to tone it down, put on the black and the blue, gray pants, right? Straighten your hair, put on a wig. And the 22-year-old in the group shared she was really surprised to see, you know, her, her mom's good friend, her family friend looking this way and was shocked, like didn't like it. And the older woman who had just done all this raving, this, you know, two questions before about their, you know, good old days back on college campuses were saying, oh, yes, but sweetie, what did you expect her to do? She was running for office and she couldn't go in there looking like this, right? She couldn't go in there with the fuchsias and the pinks and the yellows. And um, and it just seemed like, you know, such this about face that makes me wonder, what will this 22-year-old do, right? If we were to ask her this question 20 years from now, will she tell you the story about how she really was shocked and pushed her family, close family friend, um, you know, her mother's friend to be her authentic self, but then say, you know, to the younger generations 20 years later, you know what, sweetie, you really do need those blacks and grays and browns, right? Um, and, you know, so part of me wonders if it's cyclical, right? Or if it's just natural hair is good for certain places and not for others. And politics might be this last bastion of saying, like, you can't have natural hair and run for office. I hope that's not the case, but the focus group kind of makes me think that it might be. Thank you. That was a, a really interesting um, reflection. Um, we have a, a, a last question uh, that's coming in through the chat uh, from Bill Booth, who says, really great discussion. Thanks, Dr. Brown. How do you see the question of appropriation coming into the politics of respectability, if at all? Um, in pop culture, the debate about appropriation of, for example, braids by white artists has moved on apace in recent years. But has there been any such a question around Black identity coding and politics tangentially related? We've seen it with Beto's, uh, Beto's questionable Latinidad or Elizabeth Warren's um, an Indigenous identity, but these are not precise analogies. Yeah, um, so it is in politics, it has been not the same correlation as pop culture. And I think because politics is still a very buttoned up kind of um, a view, right? Like um, it, it's far behind pop culture, I guess, right? The, uh, the most succinct way to, to share that. But, um, but this does go to some of the, the women that um, I think women of all cultures and, and ethnicities are presenting themselves in ways that they're trying to walk this fine line of femininity, right? They still have to be taken serious as a female candidate. Um, they have to look feminine enough, but not overly feminine. Um, they can't look too masculine. And our presentation of self is a way that this happens. Now for women of color, there are certain markers or figures that, um, that embody this. 
But I think about, for white women, I think about Kristen Sinema, the senator from Arizona, who um, is bisexual, who's 45, one of the youngest senators, and you know was proceeding over the Senate floor, what, two weeks ago, maybe it was last week, um, in a jean jacket or a jean vest, a cutoff jean vest, or she'll wear like thigh-high boots or funky glasses. And people talk about her, right? They, they say like, oh, could you imagine if, you know, Maxine Waters were to lead, you know, lead the Senate wearing that? Only a white woman could have gotten away with this. Um, and that was actually pretty scandalous, you know, all over Twitter what were comments of like what, you know, what Kristen Cinema had on. Um, but I do wonder, right, if, um, you, know, you know, if the pushback or the ways that we're seeing respectability politics, um, is, I mean, we know the term comes to us from a distinctly raced and classed and gendered space, but how larger mainstream is also seeing this, right? Because we do see, you know, the, the public enacting in ways that there are certain looks for politicians and particularly for political women, um, and they're still tapped into respectability. I, I don't know if it's, again, for white women as much as it is around hair but mostly maybe clothes and other kinds of ways that they, they present themselves. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Professor Brown. Um, this brings us right to 6.45. Um, and as it seems like it's been tradition in the other uh, talks that I've been to, I would like to ask um, you know, those present here to uh, join me in thanking uh, Professor Brown in the traditional way. So please, you know, turn on your cameras or mic. <laughs> we can all, you know, instead of just the emoji. <laughs> Really, um, thank you so much for such a wonderful uh, talk. I think that we all, yeah, just learned a lot and, and this is brilliant. Um, thank you very much. Well, thank you for having me. It's wonderful to have the opportunity to engage with you in this way. Um, and hopefully if the world's a thing anytime soon, maybe we can be in person. <laughs> so thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you all for attending. Um, and I hope to see you. Uh, is it next week, Nick? Uh, the next one? Um, no, our next event in this series, I think, is on the 28th of November, and it's on Latin American anti-racisms. Great. Well, I hope to see you all um, around in our, you know, events of the seminar series. Thanks a lot. Okay, bye. Thank you.